just got to look at the bracket, Greg. If I asked you, what's the thing the committee could have screwed up the most, what would you say before looking at it? Maybe not picking Wheaton or Bethel. Oh, good. Well, we didn't get that problem. No, we didn't. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, your weekly podcast about the largest division of college football. We welcome you to podcast number 320, the one with the bracket, or uh, season 16, episode 20, your podcast for November 14th of 2022. I'm Pat Coleman. I'm the guy who runs D3Football.com and spent Saturday morning just seeing Ithaca and Cortland fans all over Midtown Manhattan. I'm Greg Thomas. I write around the nation at d3football.com. And Pat, I don't know if you saw behind me, but I got all my team back here cheering and applauding like I just got selected to the NCAA tournament. Very exciting day, Selection Sunday, of course. You get those videos of teams seeing their name up on the show and really excited to get into it, talk about our bracket and talk about our week 11, which was incredible. Um, yeah, let's get into it. Greg, for as much chaos as we could have had on Saturday, it could have been so much worse. It's like if that fly ball that bounced off Jose Canseco's head right and over the fence. It's like if that was a walk off home run in a wild card playoff game. That's what happened in the Mount Union Baldwin Wallace game. Looking to throw downfield pass is going to be. Oh my God, it was off the head of a BW player and into the hands of Mount Union and they win with no time left. Oh my goodness. I've started writing some things down in my notebook here. I've got so far Mount Union Miracle. I've got Berea Boink. I'm wondering if we've got any other possible names for uh, the way that play went down at the end. Really incredible end there to... Mount Union and Baldwin Wallace pool C teams really, really uh, clinching their, their fists, holding their breath there at the end looked for everything like Baldwin Wallace would win that game, scoring a late touchdown to go ahead of Mount Union. You can't give Mount Union that much time though. I don't know how much time do they have left? Well, it wasn't it like 23 seconds or something like that. And they got the ball on the 26 yard line and, uh, and then the heaved it from not quite the 50 and it didn't get to the end zone. It only got to the end zone after it hit off the helmet of the Baldwin Wallace defender. Of all the ways that a football can bounce and all of all the ways that a football can bounce off of your head for it to go directly back into the hands of Wayne Ruby is really something, is it not? Ruby's gem would be another one on that list for sure of uh, possible names for this one. Mount Union goes to the playoffs. They host Salisbury. Listen, we got this bracket on... Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening. We will go through it. We'll digest it with you. In our normal rundown of the podcast, we might go region by region, and we'll do that a little bit later, but we're going to pull back out the Keith McMillan format for this show. It's like what the committee got right, what the committee got wrong, et cetera, et cetera. We'll come back on that 
in uh, just a little bit. But it's a good time to remind you that this edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by the hosts of Stag Bowl 49, taking place on Friday, December 16th at 7 p.m. Navy Marine Corps Stadium in Annapolis, Maryland. And now 32 teams are ever slightly more interested in this information and, you know, getting themselves to Annapolis for what I assume slash hope slash kind of figure the way this season has gone will be an amazing game. Certainly hope we're going to get an amazing game in Annapolis. And now we have the stepladder that's going to get two teams to Annapolis for that Friday night game. Really looking forward to the event in Annapolis. We've talked about it in the last couple of podcasts. Really looking forward to spending some time in the city of Annapolis, seeing the event, seeing all of the things that the uh, NCAA Football Championships Committee has planned for the teams and, and for the fans coming to the event. Just looking at some of the top seeds here. If you're North Central, start thinking about Southwest from Midway to BWI. If you're a St. John's fan, you're MSP to BWI on Delta Airlines. None of these airlines have given us any money for this sponsorship, but I will continue to reference airlines nonetheless. Mount Union fans probably drive. Linfield fans uh, have to leave already, I believe. Same with Trinity, Texas. You could get on a uh, Southwest flight in San Antonio and go to BWI. I've flown that route myself. It is not super difficult to get to Annapolis, Maryland, and that is a great thing for this championship. Absolutely. It is a lot of ways to get to Annapolis. BWI, Reagan National, if you want to spend some time in the district, you can do it that way as well. Uh, Plenty of ways to get in and around the Annapolis area and come and see Stag Bowl 49 in Annapolis. The ways to get there, of course, if you are a participating team, is win four games. You win four games to get to Annapolis. You win one more to win a Division Three Football National Championship. Just kind of looking at this bracket, Greg, right? You got St. John's, North Central, Mount Union, and Trinity in what are traditionally the spots allotted to top seeds in this bracket. Uh, number two seeds, Whitewater, Ithaca, Delaware Valley, and Linfield. I think I went in the same order both times. I think the interesting things to talk about right here at the top of the podcast is just jump right in and say what the committee got right and what the committee got wrong. Not black and white, Ritter. Right and wrong. Starting with what the committee got right, I think this is a clear vindication of the amazing season that we had this year in Division Three football and the risks that teams took in scheduling their non-conference games. So they rewarded two lost teams with at-large bids. They rewarded a team with one loss with what looks like a top seed, and they kind of just generally made tough scheduling make sense for teams. That's something that hasn't always happened, and it's really important for the competitiveness of Division Three football, I think, in general, that this sort of thing gets rewarded this year and that it continues to get rewarded going forward. I couldn't agree more. I think we really were waiting to see how the committee was going to react to all of that aggressive scheduling that we saw early in the season and the teams that went and played those games were rewarded. St. John's, Whitewater, two losses, but playing at home. Wheaton playing the out-of-conference game at Trinity therein. Really seeing uh, Hardin-Simmons obviously going to Platteville and, and getting in as well. So really seeing the committee pay that off. And maybe that is something that will encourage more of that going forward. Um, something that, Pat, that I saw that I thought the committee got right, and I think we know that these kinds of things happen organically. So I don't know if this is something they got right intentionally or if it's just something that kind of happened, but I was excited to see that we're going to get a new matchup in Annapolis. 
last year's finalists, they're yep. on one side of the bracket. And for folks who like to think that the committee plots this whole thing out to set up a Mount Union Whitewater final, uh, first, please come and join us in the current decade. And second, <laughs> they're also on the same half of the bracket, so they're not going to play in Annapolis either. This season's season finale should give us a new matchup in the Stag Bowl, and I can't think of a better way to finish this amazing season than with a new matchup in the Stag Bowl. Yeah, it's interesting how you try to construct one of these brackets, right? You basically, it's like, who are my top seeds? And then I'm going to line them up, right? You know, so if North Central is my overall top seed, then is Trinity my number four seed? Or is St. John's the top seed? Is Mount Union the four? Not really clear from from this bracket necessarily. Why don't we flip over into what I did not like about this bracket? And then we're talking about some of the things that are not nearly as separated as they used to be, right? Often the committee in the last few years has taken some pains to separate some of these teams, not necessarily North Central and Mary Harden Baylor, but the two WIAC teams could be slated to meet up in the national quarterfinals Obviously, Harden-Simmons and Mary Harden-Baylor with a potential rematch in round two if they get that far. North Central and Wheaton are on the same side of the bracket, although not until the national semifinals. Some of these things are resolved simply by flopping whole brackets, which generally doesn't cost a whole lot of money. Yeah, you can do some different things with switching pods of brackets. I think this is one where maybe... Maybe you could have done something. Maybe you could have moved the whole Linfield pod and swapped it with, like, say, the the Delaware Valley pod. And I think you could have had maybe a, a little more uh, interesting matchups there. And maybe not. Maybe that might have been good for balance as well a little bit. But, yeah, you can do some different things. When in our in our projected bracket, Pat, we you started off by saying when Linfield is going to host a bunch of games and it looks like they're in a position to do so, you can kind of do whatever you want with teams that are sort of along the step ladder that Linfield might be on because they're yeah. anybody's going to have to fly. So maybe could have done something a little more creative there, but the bracket itself, I think is, is, is actually not that bad. There's a couple spots where we're going to critique a little bit, but um, overall a decent looking bracket. If, if I'm going to pick on one thing that the committee did not get right, I'm going to, I'm going to pick on the one pool C team that kind of surprised everybody. And that's the inclusion of Utica. We had in our mock bracket, Utica still ranked below Johns Hopkins. And it didn't really see in the results, anything that should have changed how region two ordered those teams, Johns Hopkins or Utica. It looks like the strength of schedule drain that Susquehanna got when they added uh, Juniata's record into their strength of schedule drug Johns Hopkins down and the Region 2 committee, advisory committee, flipped those two teams there, making Utica the top at-large team in Region 2 and eventually into the field. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess the last team in. We haven't uh, confirmed that at the uh, time of this recording, but when you look at that, Utica 9-1, we kind of shrugged a little bit at the Morrisville State result, um, but now that's a result that really matters. And tough to be Hopkins in this situation, I think, where you got leapfrogged by a team that has, you know, maybe that result, but also a team that got beat really handily by the one ranked opponent that they did play. It's really interesting too, Greg, because who's the region two chair is blaze Faggiano head coach at Utica. And so listen, the, like the propriety of this thing 
kind of generally goes as so. If his team is on the table, he's not on the call. Someone else has to come in and uh, and represent Region 2. He doesn't have any direct influence over that, that sort of thing. But I have heard from so many coaches and administrators, it's like when that team is on the table and that person is off the call, none of you really want to face that person when they come back and say, hey, by the way, while you were gone, we didn't select you. It's so difficult, and I don't really know a way around something like that. And it just, in a situation where we've already flopped around these Region 2 rankings, and we've kind of hand-waved away a Utica win that probably shouldn't have been, that was one of the reasons why I didn't think Utica should have even come to the table when we were doing our mock on Saturday night. Yeah, and at the end of the day, Pat, we're going to see Utica justify or not justify their selection. They're going to play Susquehanna. We're going to get some common opponent data here to see if it makes sense that they were placed in the tournament instead of Johns Hopkins, knowing that we know Johns Hopkins was a defended two-point play away from from possibly beating Susquehanna at Susquehanna. One of the things I do like about this bracketed, any bracket where I see the bracketing has been done with a sense of irony, I think that's been done here. Indeed, Utica can prove that they belong in the field ahead of Johns Hopkins by beating Susquehanna or losing by fewer than two or two or fewer. One of those things would certainly go a long way toward that. What's the most intriguing thing in this bracket that uh, might have been missed? One thing that people may have missed in this bracket, I think, Pat, are all of the new teams, but that's not anybody's fault. There actually aren't an abundance of new teams in this year's bracket, and that is something that I find intriguing. 17 of the 27 Pool A qualifiers qualified through Pool A last year as well. And three of the five Pool C bids went to teams that received Pool C bids last year. So if you're doing that math in your head, that means that we've got 20 of the 32 teams in this field that were also in last year's field. So if this bracket feels familiar, uh, it kind of is. It also makes it more difficult to put that bracket together because you're trying to avoid recreating some of those early round matchups. Like for example, you don't want to necessarily send Lake Forest to St. John's again, although that is a perfectly defensible use of the various seedings and regional ranking results of those two teams. You know, you don't necessarily want to send Northwestern to UW Whitewater because that's happened a lot. We're really hamstrung in that part of the country. In fact, I think that's why Alma is hosting it all in the first place is because you and I tried to send Alma to so many different places in our projection and in the swapping around what we ended up publishing was not even geographically viable sending uh, Alma to Wartburg, although that would be an appropriate matchup from the seating standpoint. And, you know, just to revisit what JJ Neckloff said in the very first minute and a half of the selection show was to talk about financial constraints is like, Whoa, all right, we're being really upfront and forward about this. We are being bean counter forward on this particular selection show. Yeah. He really cleared the deck right up front with that one. Yeah. It was difficult to put the matchups together in ways where you weren't rematching teams that played last year. That's not a criteria, but it also, you don't want to, you want to keep the tournament fresh that way. One other, one other possible rematch that they could have done this time around and did not Mary Harden, Baylor and Trinity. They could have played those two. Uh, together would have been less likely, obviously, but that was, uh, you know, that's one that was a, they were able to avoid as well. 
One of the things I found intriguing about this bracket is it's the first time since 2017 that the committee paired up two New England teams to face each other in the first round. So, like, New England is this even little subset of formerly the East, now a subset even of Region 1. We're just talking about Maine, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. And often, those teams are shipped out. They're sent somewhere else. Generally, their criteria aren't very good, and they're sent to Delaware Valley or to Ithaca, to Salisbury. In this case, they did send Springfield to Endicott. I didn't even necessarily track on how rare this was until someone pointed it out in a caustic comment on our bracket projection, the one where we had Mass Dartmouth going to Endicott. So when you go back and look at 2017, that was even a matchup where the uh, committee's hand was forced by geography. That's Springfield hosting Husson. Husson is so far up in Maine. You can't get Husson to the Delaware Valley. You can't get Husson to Western New York. It's been a long time since the uh, committee paired up two teams from New England by choice, but I think it's right. I think it is uh, exactly makes sense. I think it does make sense as well. And I think it makes sense, particularly given the Kings loss, which dropped them out of the number two spot in region, region one, almost certainly elevating Endicott to the second ranked team in region one. So feels like Endicott has earned a home game here and then they're playing Springfield. I think that's, I think that's an interesting game, really Uh, Endicott with uh, such a great defense. They're going to play, a non-traditional offense or maybe maybe a super traditional offense, depending on how you view it. That'll be an interesting game at, at Endicott next weekend. Oldest of schools, for sure. Winner of that game goes on to face the winner of Ithaca and Mass Dartmouth. We are not going to read through the entirety of the bracket. You can find the bracket on d3football.com. I guess we'll post it in the show notes as well. And everybody is talking about it on Twitter. I'm going to break the uh, rundown here for just a moment, Greg. I got a text just now as we're recording this on early Sunday evening that says the rack should be disbanded. And so I texted back this person and I said, which rack? Just out of curiosity, lots of racks. <laughs> this, and we responded, all of them, to be honest. So that's fun. That's the kind of emotions that are going out around these parts today for sure. I feel like we're in that that meme where the the dog is sitting in a chair and everything's on fire. This is fine. That's how this is going for some people this afternoon. This is like a live reading of my uh, text stream right now. Uh, it continues. Too much politicking being allowed. Zero consistency from region to region and from year to year. So disbanded or there has to be a level of accountability presented. I will buy on consistency from region to region, consistency from year to year. We talked about it with JJ back in pod 319 about how some racks, region four comes to mind, sort first and primarily and solely by winning percentage. And you got all your unbeaten teams before anybody otherwise can be considered. That doesn't happen every year, but it has in you know the past several years since it's had the same chair. And then other regions have done it differently. It's always a bit of a cluster We talked about it a few minutes ago, too. It's just like the committee is rewarding strength of schedule and aggressive scheduling this year, but there's no guarantee that that continues. And if you are St. John's and I don't know if you signed up for four years with Whitewater and one of them, it's really good for both of you. And the other three, you get screwed. That's not good. And it's it happens in Division three football, I think, a lot. Yeah, we can see some of the the mock bracketing or the mock regional rankings that we do on after the games on on Saturday night in week 11. 
we're sort of trying to mimic what those committees are going to do. And we have, you know, a little bit of historical information about how in general, like region four behaves with theirs. And that kind of informs the way that we drew up those mock rankings. It's not necessarily exactly how we would do it, but I would say on this point about just disband the racks and all of that. No, like, no, no, no. The, the national committee cannot watch a hundred games a week. They just can't. Um, you need these subcommittees, these advisory committees to zero in and watch these, uh, watch the games in their region, the games of interest and pay attention to the teams of interest. The national committee relies on, on those eyes and that input to get it right. And if we're looking at what was selected this year in pool C, the only real quibble we have is, is Utica instead of Johns Hopkins. And those teams were neck and neck in their regional rankings. And there, you know, it seems like there was just a little bit of, of strength of schedule math that flipped those from Wednesday to Saturday night. And while I can disagree, I can also understand what happened there. I don't think it's unreasonable or that it's so far outlandish that it requires a disband all of the racks text. Were we talking about defunding the racks? Is that what we're talking about here? I think what needs to happen often happens and often in years it does is that, you know, you take that advisory. It's called the regional advisory committee. They make the advice to the national committee. The national committee can look at it and decide, you know, do we accept this? Do we make some tweaks, et cetera, et cetera. And in years where you've got a good chair and a good group of committee members at the national level, then I think they generally do a good job. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes you get, I would say there's probably two other kinds of committees or committee chairs. You've got the benign uh, committee chair that, you know, just doesn't bother to make the changes, just accepts what the rack does and rolls with it. And then I think you've got the chair who should have taken the Hippocratic oath to do no harm. Right. But instead makes active changes to rack advice and does bad things with the bracket. I think we've seen all of those things over the course of, I mean, not going all the way back to 99 when this whole pool setup started, but just thinking back in the last 10, 15 years or so, there's definitely been a wide variety of types of committees. And again, it just makes it impossible for coaches to schedule in a way that helps them get their team into the playoffs. Moving on to best first round game. Got a couple of candidates for this one, and they are usually the result of decisions being made that we wouldn't necessarily agree with. For example, I'm looking forward to a really exciting game between Bethel and Wheaton. You know, can Jaron Rosti go the full four quarters? He's been struggling with pain management. He did not finish the game against St. John's, but that'll be a matchup I'm really interested in seeing. I would have been really interested in seeing that matchup in the second round, but uh, that was not something that was presented to us as a possibility. So maybe that's a game that's on the bracket blitz on Saturday when we're going around all 16 first round games. That might be one we focus pretty heavily on in the noon central time hour. I'm looking forward to that one. What do you think about uh, best first round game? My best first round game is going to be Wisconsin lacrosse at Wartburg. Um, These are two teams, Pat, that I have in my top eight in my top 25 ballots submitted today. New top 25 available on d3football.com, by the way. This is a number four versus number eight game for me. I think our poll is still really undervaluing Wartburg. These are two teams that I think 
could could possibly win regions. And now they're going to play in the first round and this season is going to be over maybe a week or two sooner than uh, fans from either of these teams expected. I think you've got, these are two really good teams. I think they're really big, really physical. You got some good defenses here. Wisconsin lacrosse, we know, lost just by, I think, three points to Wisconsin Whitewater. They went to Michigan, defeated a Division Division II team this year. Really strong and powerful team there in lacrosse. I think it's going to be a really powerful game in Waverly, Iowa this weekend. The uh, current poll, the one that goes into the playoffs, has lacrosse sitting still at number seven. Wartburg moved up three spots from 15 to 12. That's a little closer to where it sounds like you're ranking them. And because Cortland lost and we finally broke the Cortland Ithaca log jam and Bethel lost to St. John's and they also just hopped Delaware Valley naturally. So they moved up three spots on Sunday. Greg, we often talk about the toughest path to the stag bowl. This is often just a result of how the bracket was drawn. Uh, What's your take on the toughest path to get to Annapolis? I think the toughest path to the Stag Bowl is going to start in San Antonio. That's where Hardin-Simmons is going to play Trinity. That's a top 10 game, and the winner of that game is going to have to follow up with a game against Mary Hardin-Baylor, most likely, and then a game against whoever emerges from the Linfield-Wheaton-Bethel pod, and then a semifinal game against North Central, likely. That means in order to make the title game from that starting spot on the bracket, somebody's going to have to wipe out four top 10 teams and it probably doesn't get any more difficult than that. Yeah. I think when we're talking about toughest path to the stag bowl, we're only talking about, you know, quality teams, right? So like Northwestern obviously has a really tough path to the stag bowl because they got to get by St. John's in the first round. I think there's really only two brackets you can come out of this year and maybe in most years and actually have a legit toughest path to the stag bowl. I think I'd point out Wartburg also. So Wartburg hosts UW lacrosse. That's a higher ranked team coming to them. Then likely that team plays St. John's and then potentially UW whitewater and then possibly Mount union. Although who knows? Okay. Question of the day. Is this adversity? The crazy way that game ended. Is this one that's going to spur Mount Union to just go bonkers and blow their way through this bracket? Or is this a game and, you know, kind of the week before against uh, John Carroll as well, games that show weakness in Mount Union and then we're going to see them. I don't know if they get knocked out before the quarterfinals looking at this bracket, but, you know, a year where, again, they do not get to the Stag Bowl. It's a good question. I mean, I think I think people are maybe waiting to see if Mount Union is going to flip a switch and be great. Mount Union winning games by 50 and 60 points in the postseason. And they and they might for a round or two, but two weeks in a row against teams that are, you know, in the upper 50-ish of Division Three, they've had competitive games. They've won both of those games, but maybe we're just seeing where Mount Union is and and not a blip. Maybe they're not vanilla. If they've got something to show it, like when you're in a 10 point game against Baldwin Wallace with the playoffs on the line, maybe it's time to not be vanilla there. So maybe we're seeing just kind of what Mount union is and they're going to be a tough team to beat obviously, but we've also seen in the last couple of tournaments that teams in that top 15, top 20 area can, can challenge Mount union in a way that top a team in ranked 15 or 20, maybe didn't challenge Mount union a number of years ago. We're very thankful for the people who helped make this podcast possible. 
and those are specifically, we're thinking about the people who support D3Football.com, D3Sports.com, and the production of this podcast using the Patreon service. So Patreon is a way that people who create content, people who make art, we make content, we don't make art, the occasional rent parody aside, by using the Patreon service. People can subscribe to a content producer from as little as $3 a month, $5 a month, all the way up to much more than that by going to patreon.com slash d3sports. Right, our Patreon subscribers help fuel all of the d3sports.com family of websites. Basketball season is happening. It's on. D3hoops. Oh, it's happening. D3hoops.com is bustling with activity. But right now during football season, it's playoff season, and we really see all of that Patreon support manifested in the regular cycle of coverage that our readers see throughout each and every week, plus a bunch of bonus playoff road to Annapolis coverage starting this week. Our features columns around the nation, our on-site coverage, and the live scoreboard that you get on game day. All of these things are made possible by our Patreon supporters. If you enjoy D3Football.com and all of the coverage the site provides, consider joining our group of Patreon subscribers or support the site with a one-time donation. Maybe you're already a Patreon subscriber. If so, thank you so much. You can continue to contribute to and support D3Football.com by spreading the word to your fellow fans at your next home game or through your off-season communication channels. If if week 11 was it for you. Is week 11 it for people that you know? Yeah, the the little giants are done for 2022. Had a chance with the with the playing game uh, it did not go well. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. Yeah, we didn't forget about game balls. My game ball for Saturday is going to Matt DeSimplicis. Matt DeSimplicis, starting linebacker for Ithaca in that uh, epic 34-17 win against Cortland in front of 40,232 fans at Yankee Stadium in the Bronx in the 63rd playing of the Cortica Jug game. Ten tackles, uh, but most importantly, I think, Two key takeaways. Uh, one, which was officially ruled a fumble. My view, my vantage point is like above home plate, which is great in a baseball press box, but not so good in a football standpoint. It looked to me like Zach Boys is trying to throw the ball away and basically just chucked it right into DeSimplis' hands. They called it a uh, fumble recovery, and then he actually did get an interception in the closing moments of the first half. Cortland is driving. Boys had thrown a ball that uh, hit at the feet of a receiver at the goal line. And then on the third down play, DeSimplicis intercepted it, completely changed the momentum for that team going into halftime. Just a couple of really big plays, 10 tackles, one and a half tackles for loss on, you know, as large a stage venue-wise in a rivalry game, especially as you can get in Division Three football this year. That guy gets my game ball. But we're going to double down on defense this week, and my game ball is going to go to Lake Forest senior defensive end Alex Bendler. In a game that Lake Forest had to not just win, but lead in all four quarters, Bendler filled up the stat sheet for the Foresters while pushing the Maroons away from the goal line. Bendler blocked a field goal attempt in the third quarter to keep Chicago off the scoreboard. Bendler also tallied three sacks and six total tackles for loss. He also forced a Maroon fumble to end a drive near midfield and halt another scoring opportunity there. 
For his all-around defensive effort in a postseason play-in game, Alex Bendler gets my game ball. Is it better to have a tiebreaker that is most quarters led, or is it better to have a tiebreaker that is the other seven coaches in our conference are going to vote which one gets in? You don't have the votes. You don't have the votes. <laughs> At least the quarters led thing, you you sort of settle it on the field. And I think that's probably yeah. better. Still not a great tiebreaker, but better than coaches voting in secret. We're still going to go region by region, but you know, we're pretty deep into this podcast already. We've got some more content to cover. We're just going to each pick three regions and go through them one at a time. And I'm going to start with what's fun in the one. I'm a real wild one. And what's fun in the one for me from week 11 is the Secretary's Cup matchup between service academies in the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy and the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. Like this game always has the pomp and circumstance and the excitement of an Army Navy game. And in this instance, the Merchant Marines ended up singing second, rallying from a 30 to 14 deficit to beat Coast Guard 41 to 33. It's the fourth win in a row in the series for the Mariners. Jeremiah Wang getting his chance to start in the team's triple option offense this year. Ran for 116 yards and two touchdowns and threw for 106 and two more scores in the win. First win in the rivalry game for new head coach Jamison Crowell. Yeah, that's a big game. I was looking for a link to that early on Saturday, Pat, and then figured out that, that oh yeah, that one's on ESPN+. Plus. Pat, who's who in the two? You probably haven't heard of Kyle Devaney over at Kane. He's a senior wide receiver. He'd gotten the ball thrown his direction a few times this year for the Cougars. But with starting quarterback Anthony Cesare getting hurt on the first drive in the team's Friday night game at TCNJ and the backup already injured, Coach Dan Garrett decided to call on this guy, fifth-year senior, for the second half of this game. Never mind that he hadn't played the position since senior year of high school. Devaney completed six of eight passes for 130 yards and two touchdowns as Kane got past TCNJ by the score of 17-10. to 10. Just a few weeks of practice as the emergency quarterback, the QB3, as it were, and Devaney gets the call and gets his team the W. Greg, what do you see in the three? What I see in the three is that we passed out all of the automatic bids last week, so there were no playoff implications really on the line when Hampton-Sydney played Randolph-Macon. And Macon picked up a 38-17 to win over their arch-rivals in the game. Some pretty big firsts here for Randolph-Macon. This is the first time that they've won 10 games in a single season. And it's also the first time that they've scored at least 35 points in every game in a season. This was Randolph-Macon's ninth consecutive win in the game. I found that an interesting fact. You sort of think think of this as a uh, throw-the-records-out-anything-can-happen kind of thing. But uh, Randolph-Macon is on... A, about a decade long uh, win streak here against Hampton Sydney. Yeah, last time Hampton Sydney won that game uh, was in 2013. Hampton Sydney won that game 28 to 26, and that was the year that they got matched up against Maryville at home and then went out to Linfield in the second round of the playoffs. All that had to happen, apparently, for Randolph making to go 10-0 and was Keith had to stop doing quick hits. That's the only thing I see that's changed. That's what the four by four's for, son. what the four by four's for. Pat, what's the score in the four? 
What's the score in the four? Uh, one of the nine winner-take-all games from Saturday took place in the four, and that was with Mount St. Joseph defeating Rose Holman by the score of 40-31. to 31. Unlike some of the other big games for MSJ of late, you know, where the Lions are trailing late, had to rally, this was one where they were able to hold the fighting engineers at arm's length. Rose Holman is driving in like the closing five minutes of the first half, trailing 20-13, to 13, and they managed to get from their own 22 all the way down to first and goal from the two-yard line. But Austin Price broke up a pass on first down. Declan Brophy made a tackle after a gain of one on second down. And then on third down, Mount St. Joseph got a stop on a short run up the middle for no gain, setting up fourth down and one. After a timeout, Rose Holman came out, settled for the 19-yard field goal to go into the locker room down 2016. And, you know, RHIT never had a better chance to take the lead as quarterback Josh Taylor ran for two touchdowns in the second half and threw a touchdown pass to Cornell Beecham Jr. in the second half as well. Mount St. Joseph is going to the playoffs for the first time since 2009. Greg, who picked off five in the five? Mumbo number five. Aurora picked off five in the five. They left no doubt in their conference championship tilt against Concordia, Wisconsin, as the Spartans raced away with a 42-0 victory. Josh Swanson was excellent for the Spartans. He threw for 333 yards and five touchdowns. The Spartan defense intercepted five Falcons passes. The degree of difficulty is going to go up for Aurora next week as they go to Perkins Stadium to play Wisconsin Whitewater. Concordia, they're not done yet. They're going to play Monmouth in the Lakefront Bowl. And I know you were at the 6th Street, 6th Street, 6th Street, 6th Street, 6th Street, 6th Street. I was at the 6th Street rivalry game this weekend, and I got to see Pomona Pitzer clinch a share of the Skyac football championship and qualify for the NCAA postseason for the first time in program history. Quinton Wimmer caught two touchdown passes for the Sagehens. He also threw one on a nifty double pass as the Sagehens defeated Claremont Mudscripts 28-14. Program firsts are always a special moment, and I had the chance to catch up with Pomona Pitzer head coach John Walsh after the game. I guess first, congratulations. Very first Skyac championship for Pomona Pitzer football. Tell me about that and how you're feeling. Oh, it's amazing. Anytime you're a part of history for two institutions, it's it's awesome. It's not about me. It's about the players before here, the coaches before. But uh, this is a fun team to, to coach and to work for. We knew we were good. We had some tough overtime losses, but... You know, we, we were ready. We were ready to play the stacks. Defense was amazing today, particularly your defensive line. They really did a good job on Edwards and really everything else that CMS tried to do. Tell me about those guys and the work they did this week. Those are guys who have played a lot of football for us. You know, a couple of them came back for their fifth year, so football and this program are important to them. And they, you know, they played really well against this team last year. So I knew they're ready to do that again. So, you know, that's a very good defensive front we have. One last thing, you got plans tomorrow afternoon? Two o'clock selection show. You know, I'm going to enjoy this one for a little bit and then start watching some film and get ready for that two o'clock selection show. The nice thing is we practice tomorrow, so we're ready. We're ready to get back to work. Congratulations, John. Go enjoy this with your team. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Big deal on campus, on campuses. First conference championship since 1955 for Pomona Pitzer. And as you said, first trip to the NCAA Division Three football playoffs. Yes, and that, that last, the 1955 championship was when Pomona and Claremont were combined. Um, since they split and used different uh. student bodies, um, this is the first time that the, the Pomona-Pitzer combination has won. So 
uh, really, really big deal for those guys. And they were really excited about it. Revisiting Cortica Jug for a second, you know, Cortland comes into that game riding high, nine wins in a row, ranked number 11, Empire 8 champs, you know, looking to set up multiple home games. And instead, coach can always say, right, that uh, when you get exposed in a game, you can always take that stuff back, look at it on tape, fix it, that sort of thing. But it's got to be really demoralizing going into a playoff game that way. But... It didn't seem like they really felt that way. Here's Coach Kurt Fitzpatrick talking about it after the game. I think it's a huge learning experience. Um, huge. You know, we, um, we've we won a lot of games. Um, we, haven't, we haven't faced a ton of adversity as a team uh, because of how well we've played this year. You know, I don't think it's necessarily because of the quality of our opponents. We play in a really good league. I just think we've played extremely well. Um, today we didn't play our best and we faced adversity. I think there's a lot you can take from that. We have to. We have no choice. We, ha- we have to take something from it. Um, you know, we lost the game. You can't replay it. It's over. And, and so, you know, we want to look, look in the, in, through the windshield, not through the rearview mirror, and, and, and try to learn from it and, and move on. I'm sure people have said that they want to look through the windshield, not the rearview mirror before, but that was the first time I'd heard it. Uh, I wrote that down. That was pretty notable to me. Yeah, and you know, Cortland's got to have a short memory here. They're going to travel to Randolph-Macon this week. Probably, you know, maybe a little bit of a surprise. Probably thought they were going to be at home this weekend, but then the whole thing came unsuffled there for them in Yankee Stadium. Uh, big game against Randolph-Macon, and they got a chance to redeem themselves a little bit uh, by winning a playoff game or two. Did you say unsuffled? Unsuffled. <laughs> I don't know what that means. When the souffle becomes unsuffled. <laughs> okay. I was wondering if it was a souffle reference. This is what you get for opening the oven, right? It, that's exactly what happened. And not to neglect the other side of the Cortica Jug rivalry, here's Michael Turper with Fast Five. Note, neither of us has any voice as we have this interview after the game. See you all met. See you all met. See you all met. Joined by Michael Tripper, head coach of Ithaca, winning the Cortica Jug on Saturday by the score of 34-17. Coach, um, some of these things were talked about after the game already, but you know, you were an assistant coach at Ithaca. We talked about this back in, I think, February on the podcast as well. Coming back, getting to this point, taking home the jug, 10-0 record, getting ready for the playoffs. Is it possible to encapsulate all of those thoughts into something yet? It's really hard. I can't articulate it right now, but Pat, you know, it's just a credit to these guys, resilience, and it's one thing to talk about doing it. It's another thing to actually go out and do it and take it one week at a time, and I think these guys really bought in and believe in that, and they just love each other and play together, play for each other and with each other, and just, it really, it's incredible. Incredible the job that they've done and our assistant coaches have done. I think one of the things people have talked about between Cortland and Ithaca, who have been neck and neck in our pool all season, kind of waiting for this game, right, is that they weren't sure if Ithaca had, like, the individual standout players, where it seemed like Cortland did, and today that certainly didn't matter. No, we talk about it all the time. It's we over me, we over me, we over me. There are stats that matter, and there are stats that don't matter. Individual stats don't matter. You know, we're all about situational football and doing whatever it takes to win a game. You come away from today, obviously with a W, but a, a lot of stuff on film to kind of look at, right? If nothing else, I mean, you guys performed really well defensively in a lot of cases, got some key takeaways, um, but then, you know, the, you let Zach boys kind of run all over you. Like, uh, 
21 yards on third and 17, and that was not the only time he converted one of those with his legs. No, incredible job by him. And I, I don't think there's anything else we could do. We, you know, we, we just got to tackle better. <laughs> it's yeah. like when you so. go look, look at it, you know, we got to get the guy on the ground. We, we blitzed him. We spied him. We did some different things, and the kid just made a bunch of plays. And I'm just hats off and kudos to him as, as a gritty competitor. And um, certainly this, that's a team that's going to make a lot of noise in the playoffs without a doubt. Tell us a little bit more about the secondary. Secondary, obviously a fantastic job today. Basically left Cortland with nobody to throw to. When you talk about our secondary, you got to talk about their resiliency and, and our depth there because Antoine Robinson, our senior captain, uh, goes down, dislocates his knee a few weeks ago, and uh, a lot of people counted that secondary out. And we had a bunch of guys step up like Tommy Moran and Kevin Shock and Ryan Salisbury broke his hand, uh, and you know, a couple weeks ago too. So he wasn't, you know, at his best. And so for our guys to go in there and, and just battle and battle and battle and keep the ball in front of us is just so impressive by by them and, and a great job by our defensive coaching staff preparing them. And just really a tremendously <laughs> efficient performance by Wingfield today, 18 to 20 passing, 209 yards. You know, frankly, the only thing is he got blindsided one time and that was about it. I wish we would have run the ball there. Um, that's on us as coaches. But I think, uh, you know, he just, that's who he is. He's a competitor. The moment's never too big for him. And I really feel good when the ball is in his hands. Tell me a little bit about Matt DeSimplicis. I thought his, uh, obviously he was in the right spot for a couple of key takeaways, but just one of the guys who had a tremendous game defensively on Saturday. Just another gritty performer. You know, we've been busting his chops all year about when you going to get your pick, man. When you going to get your pick, right? You know, he does these great things. One hand catches and practice all this stuff. And then um, he got the last laugh because he got it at the end of the first half, which is like such a huge play and a turn of momentum. You know, they go in and score there. We're talking about a totally different ball game here. So, um, just a great job by everybody on that play, just forcing the quarterback not to go to his first read and, and scramble, and then we just made the play necessary to go into the half with the momentum. I'm very proud of our guys. All right, you're in a much better position having won than if you had lost, right? You're in a position, I think, who knows what the bracket looks like, uh, but you will probably be in a position to get at least two home games out of this. Who knows, maybe third if something breaks right, rather than maybe one home game and having to go on the road. You have to feel pretty happy about that. Yeah, I'm just worried about this next opponent, whoever it might be. You know, it's going to be at our place probably, and we got to focus on them because you can't get two without getting one. So now it's survive in advance mode. Nothing, nothing we've done at this point is going to matter next week. I was just going to guess Mass Dartmouth or something like that. I have no idea. Put the ball down. You said that. I actually, I like that. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit, right? Whether there's 40,000 or 5,000 or 1,000 or 20 people. Yeah, I think our guys just love playing football together, and I think they'll play anywhere. Cornfield, Street, Butterfield, MetLife, Yankee State, just put it down. These guys want to play together and play complimentary football across the board, and they love that. They don't care who gets the credit. They don't want stats. They just want to win. And it's like keeping the guys together, keeping the family together for another week, right? I want to keep playing with these guys forever if I could. If I can freeze time and just keep this team forever, I would. But that's not college football. But we're just going to try and stay together as much as we possibly can. We know that they're going to put it down at Butterfield at noon on Saturday. Ithaca, they've done a lot of exercising in the last couple of weeks. They broke that RPI barrier. Then they closed the deal in the Liberty League against Union. Then they won the Cortica Jug on Saturday to complete a perfect 10-0 season. The Bombers are on quite a ride, and they have a decent pathway to a regional final. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. Tiresome. Now's the time of the podcast where... Oh, 
you just sift through hundreds of comments on our stories over the course of the last 24 hours. The dumpster fire that is Twitter on a uh, Division Three selection night. And here's what we ended up with from Ted Sarandis, at Sarandis Ted, with a four-part question. Maybe we'll take them all. We'll try to be brief about them. Assuming DelVal gets by Gallaudet, do you believe Cortland or Randolph-Macon is the tougher second-round matchup? I have not watched a ton of Randolph-Macon specifically, and this is the sort of thing that is a little bit of an eyeball test. From having kind of gleaned things from people and watched Cortland on Saturday, I think Cortland is going to take what they learned from Ithaca and turn some stuff back on. I might, in fact be tempted to pick Cortland at Randolph-Macon when we do quick hits this week. I'd be interested to see how that goes. I think Cortland's probably the tougher second-round matchup for Delaware Valley here. I think so. I think Cortland is maybe a little more explosive offensively. The thing with anybody against DelVal is as soon as somebody has the personnel to be able to score some points against DelVal, DelVal is usually in trouble. And so Cortland, I think, maybe a little more capable offensively than Randolph-Macon. Um, I mean, but I did say Randolph Macon has scored 35 points in every game this season, so they're no slouch themselves. But I think I agree with you, Pat. I think Cortland is probably a tougher matchup for DelVal than Randolph Macon is. One of the things that I noticed from Cortland on Saturday, early on in the game, they were trying to stretch the field. They were trying to throw swing passes in the flat. It was not working for them. Speed up front, speed on the edge is a problem. If it does become a Cortland DelVal matchup, that's a spot where Delaware Valley could definitely have some success. Next part, would Kings have got in if it beat Wilkes? Great question that we dodged having to deal with on Saturday night because Wilkes made it obvious from jump that uh, Kings was not going to be in position for that at large bid. Kind of wonder about Kings and Utica because I think that's probably where it comes down to, right? I think you probably would have. And I think Kings at nine and one, they would have had a ranked win over Stevenson at that point as well. I think they probably would have been favored in a Kings versus Utica situation with similar strengths of schedule. Kings would have had a ranked win. Utica did not. I think, I think Kings probably wins. It's probably in the playoffs if they won their game, but they didn't, they, they were knocked out of that game pretty quickly. I mean, just based on what we heard from J.J. Nekoloff, the committee chair on our Wednesday podcast, means that the common opponent of Hartwick for both Kings and Utica, one of the most instructive pieces of data probably gets thrown out. Kings beat Hartwick 17-10, to and three weeks later, Utica beat Hartwick 57-7, to but apparently a 50-point win and a 7-point win are now somehow magically just the same. This whole thing is a travesty and a sham and a mockery. It's a travesty mockery. No making up words. I do concur that probably with that in mind, we might have seen Kings ahead of Utica. But then, you know, all of the things that happened uh, with Utica in the final moments, I assume, of selection on Saturday would still have been in their favor, I think. Yeah, it just can we come back to it? It's just it's strange that they're not really able or even allowed to dig into those results beyond just who won or lost a game. There's really important information there. I guess it's a good thing that those two teams weren't on the table at the same time. 
third part of Ted Sarandis's question, and here's where we go off the rails. Do you agree that the Wyack is overrated? No. I'm going to jump in and say no. Uh, the Wyack is properly rated at number one with a fair amount of distance between number one and number two. And then the last part, do you agree that Plymouth State was robbed and deserved a Pool C bid? No, I do not believe that Plymouth State was robbed. I don't believe that Plymouth State was in consideration for a Pool C bid really at any time. They were pretty clearly in a win against Mass Dartmouth and qualify or or not situation this weekend. They would have been on the board at 8-2 and two overall with a 468 strength of schedule. We got in a number of two-loss teams for sure. None of them had a strength of schedule of 468. And to be honest with you, just as a refresher, Bethel, which did get in at two losses, had a strength of schedule of 605. Before we got to Plymouth State, I think we I think we'll probably be 10, 11, 12 teams deep in the selection process. And uh, there just aren't that many at-large bids. Ted, thanks for the questions. Uh, if you have questions, you can throw them out at us on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag when we put that call out. All right, the editor and me is super happy that we do not have a new on the spot this week, but we still have to spot check from last time around. Last week, I asked Pat to do some over-unders, so some some simple over-unders last week for Week 11 games. The first one, uh, the total number of points scored in the Monon Bell Classic I set the line there at 65 and a half. Pat went under the total 63 in a 49 to 14 DePaul win. I could not have predicted snow, so I'm very happy about getting that little extra bit of help. The second over under was total offense for Bethel against St. John's. I set that at 380.5 yards. Pat went under again. Bethel, 347 yards of total offense. That is Two for two for Pat. And then the final over-under attendance at the Cortica Jug game, I set that at 45,161, which, of course, is the attendance for the Cortica Jug game at MetLife Stadium a couple of years ago. This year's official attendance, 40,232. They did not eclipse the 45,000-plus from the previous game, and so that is not a win. Pat picked over as they were really working to uh, break that record. If we didn't have an announcement from them about the game being sold out or trumpeting that new record at any point over the previous few weeks, I should have figured that they were not that far along. You know, clearly they're buying up big blocks of tickets in order to, uh, in order to claim the largest number of paid attendance. But I would say this, I think uh, certainly on a percentage basis, Far more seats filled on Saturday at Yankee Stadium than there were at MetLife in 2019. And I think there were, just from a raw number, more people in the stands on Saturday as well. Didn't hurt that it was literally 70 degrees in the Bronx on November 12th. That was awesome compared to, I think it was in the 30s three years earlier. And also, there's just no like tailgating parking lots around Yankee Stadium. We were told if we wanted to park as media, it was going to cost $47. I really liked taking the D train up to Yankee Stadium. 
That was uh, $2.75 or something like that. And this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 320, released on November 14th, 2022. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on our continuing coverage throughout the week. Coverage, which includes 32 team-by-team capsules. Team capsules for each playoff team. These are allegedly in progress. I assigned a few of them out last week. We have many, many more of them to assign out to uh, people who write for us uh, regularly, occasionally, once a year. Uh, We will be calling on all of you. If we haven't called on you yet, we'll be coming for you. We'll have a couple of playoff features as well this week. And then, Greg, what is the big Around the Nation this week? This week in Around the Nation, we are going to do our annual Surprises and Disappointments column where our panel of experts is going to break down the Division Three football championship bracket. Some, some mild prediction and projection there. Um, and then, obviously, uh, later in the week, Quick Hits, we're going to give you firm score predictions, wins, losses, straight up and down. Yeah, and you can use those. They'll have a number of people picking if you see – you know, some trends, you see a bunch of high scoring games, or you see a bunch of close games, or you see a split, then, you know, if four people say one and two people say the other, know that that is a toss up. If all six people think it's a touchdown or less, I think that's also still a toss up. So keep those things in mind as that comes. And then on Saturday, the bracket blitz, where we will have all 16 first round games to stream for you simultaneously. You can watch them. We'll probably have four up in a grid at one point. Frank Rossi will be hosting, and I will be joining him on that. I love this. You just kind of go around window to window. It's like, top right, this is Mass Dartmouth up in Ithaca, etc., etc. We'll get you all the key moments of all the games. If you don't have a rooting interest in a particular Division Three playoff game, but you love the D3 playoffs, that's the way to watch it, and we'll have that for you on Saturday afternoon here on D3Football.com. You can support all of that, like the production of this podcast and everything else in the D3Sports.com family of websites by visiting patreon.com slash D3Sports. But even if you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, a classmate, a fellow alum about the show, about the website, and you can rate and review the podcast in various places where people do the rating and reviewing of podcasts. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. Oh yeah, we know people do that. We don't make the brackets. We just tell you about them. I'm at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. That's why he's watching the selection show on Saturday. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well, and you can find them at djmentos.com as well as on Spotify. This week, we have to thank Michael Turper, Kurt Fitzpatrick. We have to thank Frank Rossi. I think most importantly, too, we have to thank Mark Hudak of 5167 Sports Media. That's the guy who, and that's the organization, who has helped plan these couple of big Cortica Jug games and has made it a little easier for us to cover those games. But we're very appreciative of that. Also, thanks to Greg Thomas, and thanks to the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com, Keith McMillan. Greg, I want to ask you, Mount Union catches this touchdown pass. There's a big, big pileup in which Ruby actually gets hurt, by the way. That was something that people are talking about in the background. And then also, as far as I know, 
they never made Mountain Union come out and attempt the extra point. This was a two-point ball game. They're required to at least snap that extra point. Uh, yes, they are required to snap the extra point if it's a two-point game. If it's, if it's more than two, I think they don't bother, but there's a chance the other team could score two points, right? So you gotta you got to play that play. There's nothing that says you have to attempt the extra point, but you do have to go do the snap. And I was surprised, as far as I can tell, that didn't happen in this game. Mountain Union Miracle, Berea Boink, Ruby's Gem. It was a boink. So is that a real thing? Ruby got hurt under the dog pile? Oh, no. They can't have that guy not play. He catches all of their touchdowns. Well, they could have that guy not play this week. This week, probably. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody.